Today on Motley Fool Money, a conversation about the future of agriculture and a sign that more companies are cutting back on spending. I'm Chris Hill, and I'm joined by Motley Fool Senior Analyst Jason Moser. Thanks for being here. Hey! Wouldn't it be nice if we woke up and the stock market just was bouncing up magically from here? <laughs> What is what is this you speak of? <laughs> but that's not the case. That's not the case. We 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 are in we're in a rough patch. For anyone who wasn't paying attention previously, we are in a rough patch. And the new wrinkle is that it's clear now we're we're getting a growing body of evidence that the people running public companies are keenly aware of where we are in the market. And the latest example is with Uber, um, because CEO Dara Khosra Shahi sent an email to employees saying Uber is going to cut their spending on marketing. They are going to treat hiring as a privilege. And I will just quote from early, and this is posted online for anyone who wants to read it. But uh, early in this email, he writes, after our earnings report, I spent several days meeting investors in New York and Boston. It's clear that the market is experiencing a seismic shift, and we need to react accordingly. We can go in any number of directions, Jason, but the striking thing to me is the use of the phrase seismic shift. That yeah. it's you know it's one thing for us as investors to say, boy, we're we're in a bad stretch here, and it's another thing for the CEO of a public company to say, we are as of this moment. Rethinking pretty much everything we're doing, everything is on the table. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I do appreciate the fact that they're going to pull back on unnecessary marketing spend. Um, to me, Uber Uber has hit verb status. You know, I mean, I, I think that it's in, it's in that it's in that pantheon of of companies that really. It, it, they don't really need to market a whole heck of a lot because because a lot of people really already know what it is and what it does. I mean, whether it's Uber, Uber Eats, I mean the the, the more obscure freight side of the business. I mean, ultimately, this is a business about mobility and getting things or people from point A to point B. So I'd imagine most people out there know Uber at this point. Um, it is interesting commentary. I think the seismic shift he mentioned, um, given the meeting and who it was with, you know, you you wonder if the consensus of the investing community is is pivoting away from these adjusted metrics and in, in, in these companies where we always talk about the path to profitability as opposed to you know actual profitability. Um, you you can only tell that story for so long, and that story really. Really gained a lot of steam during a time, and we've talked about this before. But but those 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 stories really gained a lot of steam during during far different economic conditions, right? I mean, we're now seeing um, a whole different approach here as as now we start to see interest rates tighten, the money the money supply tighten. Uh, there's more and more talk of recession and and, and whatnot. So it it does feel like maybe. And the investing community writ large is a little bit more focused now on okay, we've been talking about this path to profitability for a long time. We either want to see profitability, or I really want to be able to see that path. And with a company like Uber, 
I mean, really, that path should be pretty clear. The business itself, and I have to admit, this business is growing increasingly attractive to me as this valuation starts to come down. But I mean, the most recent quarter, when you look at the numbers, this is a business that's really growing. I mean, gross bookings up 35%, right? Uh, the problem is, and you see that headline net loss of $5.9 billion, right? And that's $5.6 billion of that is just a headwind related to their equity investments in companies like. Uh, you know the the grab and Aurora and the, and the DD stakes, um, and so yeah, turning maybe more towards cash flow. I mean that that shouldn't be a surprise. I think for the most part, the investing community uh, has always appreciated cash flow. I think it's just I think it's just kind of been lost in all of the hype recently, and it's it's a little bit cleaner. It's a little bit less cluttered. Um, granted. We all make adjustments to to cash flow as well. I mean there will be ongoing debates. I'm sure as to whether Stock-based compensation should be adjusted out or not, um, but that's that's for another show. I, I I think that ultimately, though, it is um, it's an astute observation from him in that the investing community is is demanding more now. It, it is a, a tricky time to be an investor, but when you have a business like Uber that really dominates its space, uh, there's really no excuse for a business like this not to shine. Well, and you always say you're much more interested in companies meeting their own expectations rather than Wall Street's expectations. Um, yeah. And earlier this year at Uber's Investor Day, he said they're going to be cash flow positive by the end of the year. So now it looks like he's going to be pulling every lever possible to make sure that happens. And in terms of the broader landscape, just last week, we saw the reports from Meta Platforms. You know, they're they're going to be, they've ordered a freeze on hiring, and yeah. I can't imagine we're not going to see more of this from large public companies. I think I think it is it is an absolute given. We will see more of this. I think there's only one direction really we can go, and that is in that that direction. I mean, Meta was not the only one, right? Robinhood. Uh, talking about not only freezing but letting some of their workforce go. Clearly, if if uh, Musk's Twitter deal goes through and it looks like it will, I mean that is going to be a a business that where the cost structure gets right sized very quickly. Um, and and those are just large publicly traded companies, right? I mean, let's not forget about all of the small to medium sized businesses out there that have really been enjoying. Uh, these these easy financial conditions for a long time. Um, I, I think I said it a few times. I mean, it, just, it feels like we are at, we're going to see the shoe on the other foot here at some point. Where the, these days, where we have more jobs than, than people to fill them, that's not going to last forever, right? I mean, all of this stuff kind of comes back full circle, and and as more and more businesses start to not only freeze their hiring but also start to work on right sizing their cost structures, which usually means letting a healthy amount of people go, um, that that shoe I think is is going to be on the on the other foot here sooner rather than later. And, and if we enter into a recession, or when I should say we enter into a recession, because it is a matter. Or when, not if. I don't know when it's going to happen, but it will eventually. I mean, that's just going to be one more thing to people to for for people to really uh, be concerned with. Consumers are, are already feeling the pinch of of record high inflation, um, and, and if you add to that an unemployment situation where now all of the stimulus has really uh, ultimately disappeared. 
I mean, we saw personal savings rates just a couple of years ago upwards of 30% plus, and now we're back down to 6% and lower. I mean, those savings are gone. Right, and and I, I I would not if 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 I'm a consumer, I am not counting on the government stepping back in to say, hey, let's just pump a little bit more stimulus into the system to to, to try to encourage this soft landing. I mean, soft landing or not, I mean, we got to land, <laughs> and this is sort of the path to that. And, and I have a feeling it's going to be a bumpy ride. You know who's not cutting back on their marketing spend? Movie studios. <laughs> they are gearing up for a big summer and. Every studio with a tentpole movie has got to be encouraged by what happened this weekend for Disney. Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness took in $185 million in its opening weekend here in the U.S., $450 million worldwide. Uh, you know, on a day when pretty much everything across the board in the market is getting whacked. Um, you know, if it was not that type of day, I wouldn't be surprised to see shares of Disney ticking up a little bit on this. But this is, um, I, I, I don't know. I thought this would do well at the box office. I didn't think it would do this well. Um, yeah, I mean the, the the Marvel universe is is really strong, right? I mean that is that is content that gets a lot of people out there and. Um, part of that, I'm sure, is just some pent up demand. I mean, if you look at the actual numbers, I mean, you go back three years. Uh, three years ago, domestic box office receipts totaled 11.4 billion dollars, and if you then go to 2020 and 2021 combined, the combined ticket sales of those two years were just a little bit more than half of that. To put all of this into context, so it it, it is it is a it, we we can argue whether this is a a market that is is in a slow secular decline. I I, I would argue it's probably not in a slow secular decline. I just don't think it's the most robust growing market, the most robustly growing market in the world. I mean, theaters still are going to serve a purpose and they will have a place. Um, maybe they'll maybe it'll be a smaller place. Who knows? I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of interesting negotiations here going forward regarding the theatrical window. And exclusivity and how that all plays into the streaming uh, environment. But I mean, I, I think there's there's a lot of interesting data out there uh, in regard to how consumers are feeling these days. Not only in regard to just the economy and getting back out, traveling, things like that, but in movies, movies in general. And, and I found some some neat uh, data from Morning Consult earlier this morning. And, and it's just you, you look at this. And more than three in five Americans, about 62% of Americans right now, are comfortable heading to a movie theater. And and that certainly is is significantly higher than it was just a couple of years ago, um, and it's up 18 percentage points since the beginning of this year. Now, the majority of that, millennials 70 percent, Gen Zers 80 percent, they're the generations most comfortable heading back to the theaters, and baby boomers at 52 percent remain the least comfortable, and that that all makes sense, I think, for the most part. I mean, kind of the way we've seen these last couple of years play out. Um, and so I think that you know we're certainly seeing customers, consumers are more more than ready to get back out there and start doing stuff. Um, I think what it really boils down to, and we say it a lot, content is king. So I don't think this is something that just spans far and wide. Uh, it just it, you could just put any movie out there and it's going to do well. I think it depends on the movie. But but that that really should play well into Disney's hand because Disney owning Marvel, of course, along with uh, Lucasfilm and Pixar, 
They possess a lot of IP, and they have a really strong pipeline of films that are set to come out here over the next several years. And so, if it really does boil down to sort of that combination of consumers being ready to go back out, but only for the right movie, well, I feel like that probably bodes pretty well for a company like Disney. It does. Certainly, later this year, they've got another Thor movie. Uh, Pixar's Lightyear is coming out. But you've also got Paramount with the Top Gun sequel. You've got Comcast Universal with another Minions movie. Um, Sony with Bullet Train. So, it, it, it does seem like there are opportunities that, I again, I think all of these studios are going to be sort of taking their shot um, and spending accordingly. Yeah, yeah, it feels that way, and you know, it, it wouldn't surprise me to, to potentially see a little bit more consolidation in, in companies trying to get stronger catalogs of, of intellectual property, uh, because you know the points you made there were all very good, but it also lends itself to that lumpy nature that we see oftentimes with these entertainment companies. And Disney, over time, has been able to smooth that lumpiness out a little bit, not just because of the diversity of their of their business model, right? They make money beyond just the movie theater, but it's also just Bringing all of that, all of that intellectual property under their umbrella, with I mean those three acquisitions alone. I mean Pixar, Lucasfilm, um, in, in in Marvel. I mean we're just just phenomenal, and so that helps them keep a little bit more of a reliable pipeline. Um, in, in, in to that point, I mean it's it's interesting to note that that what's preventing a lot of people, what keeps a lot of people from going back to theaters these days, it's not really. Covid, right? It's not. It's not the conditions on the ground. It's actually. It's. It's the costs involved with going to the movies, the tickets, and the concessions, in in and the the interest in the film itself. So it really does boil down to making sure you have the right films in the right places. Um, and then certainly, I think the theaters are really going to be champing at the bit to, uh, to to do all they can on the concession side because hey. I mean, if you're going to the movie theater, and, and I don't go all that often, but I, I do enjoy it when I go, there is no way I'm sitting down for that movie without a big old bucket of popcorn <laughs> and a massive Diet Coke. And Chris, they could probably charge me a hundred bucks, and I would probably still pay it because I go so infrequently, right? But but it is it is it is worth remembering. Those theaters make a ton of profit off those concessions. Jason Moser, great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Yes, sir. Like a lot of entrepreneurs, Jonathan Webb saw a problem in the world and wanted to see if he could help solve it. The problem? Increasing the supply of food that we grow. The company he started to tackle that challenge is App Harvest. Motley Fool contributor Rachel Warren recently caught up with Webb to talk about how he started App Harvest, the trends investors should be watching, and a lot more. First off, for members of our audience who are brand new to this space, you know, what do you define as ag tech? And next, could you dive a bit into your company's business model? You know, what it does and its its overarching mission. Yeah, so ag tech, is, as you see it today, is just how do we use modern technology to advance agriculture. But, but really, agriculture in and of itself is, is, is a human construct for humans, right? So, you know, we, we've over many centuries used technology in different forms in order to grow food. 
and and the and the last great uh, technological revolution in American farming is really when the tractor was introduced, uh, and we've seen a lot of iterations since then, but we haven't seen anything as drastic uh, as the tractor. And and today it's it's you know using big data, AI, you know vision sensing software. Uh, and and controlling the climate and and we've tried to say that that controlled environment agriculture CEA is really the third wave of sustainable uh, infrastructure and uh, if you look 20 years ago it was renewable energy uh, 10 years ago it was electric vehicles and and today it's really the third wave is controlled environment agriculture and, and we have to figure out how to grow a lot more food with a lot less resources and do it in the middle of climate disruption. So uh, using innovative business models, using the tools that are available today around the world and, and building those into a system is really at the heart of what you know ag tech and, and CEA is. And uh, we at App Harvest are, are one model out there uh, that's attacking it in, in one unique way. But uh, there, there's many, many different models and that will have to emerge uh, as we build a more resilient and robust food system that's going to feed our world, not just today, but 30 years from now. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, I wonder if you could also walk me a bit through, you know, the journey to founding App Harvest. You know, what's the story there? You know, your choice to, to locate the business in Appalachia, as mentioned, uh, you know, that is home to you. And, and why the ag tech, tech space in particular? Yeah, so for for me and, and and I think any innovative company, it should, it should always be about uh, starting with the problem and then trying to build you know a business model or solution around that problem. And uh, you had mentioned previously in the intro, my my background before this was you know building large scale renewable energy projects. Uh, I was a part of building some of the largest solar projects uh, on military installations, uh, and and have trans uh, transitioned from that. Uh, which is large-scale energy development uh, and renewable energy over to controlled environment agriculture. But, you know, it really started with the problem. And, you know, zooming out and looking at, uh, okay, the UN says we need to, to grow 50 to 70% more food by 2050. Uh, in order to grow that 50 to 70% more food, some have said we would need two planet Earths to have enough land and water. We already use 70% of fresh water today is used for agriculture purposes. So how do you how do you make that leap when we've already expanded so much around the world and, and the and the sheer land footprint and, and the water needed uh, to to uh, to grow that food? It's the, the numbers don't add up. And you know our climate discussions are, are very myopic, and we talk about carbon all day every day. And the in the world thinks, well, if we solve for carbon, uh, okay, we will prevent a rising temperature and all will be good. That's simply not the case. And and we have to expand these these environment discussions uh, to to embody everything needed in order to really support you know future human civilizations. And we're not talking about a hundred years away. Uh, there, there's a great documentary that just came out, "Eating Our Way in, uh, to Extinction." You're looking at 20, 30, 40 years out with climate disruption hitting and with the need for food rising, how are we going to grow this stuff? And, and the good thing is there, there's technologies that are available. 
um, that we can use today and marrying that together with new technologies like robotics, AI, vision sensing. Uh, you can you can grow food with 90% less water, uh, get 30 times yield per acre, uh, and do it year-round in a, in a climate-resilient structure. So our business model at App Harvest is really to build some of the world's largest controlled environment agriculture facilities. Uh, we're located in the heart of central Appalachia, and if you zoom out of Moorhead, Kentucky, you'll see that we can get to about 70% of the U.S. in a one-day drive. So we can get up to New York, down to Miami, over to St. Louis, to Washington, D.C., uh, and we're shipping to the, to, to the top 25 grocers right now, uh, Walmart, Kroger, Publix, Costco. Uh, our tomatoes are on Wendy's Burgers. Uh, and by the end of the year, we'll be growing strawberries, leafy greens, all different types of tomatoes. Uh, and we're doing it in a place that's water rich. So if you look at if you look at California and you look at the southwest of the US, they're drying up. And you know, we import two thirds of our fruits and vegetables today into the US. And then the fruits and vegetables we do grow are being grown in drought stricken regions that are running out of water. So uh, you know, we at App Harvest, it's about trying to build a company, uh, build a solution around the problem. Uh, and, and, and we wanna be a, a, a helpful player on the international stage. But right now we're, we're very focused on, on building out that food system here uh, in the US. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's very exciting to hear about. One of the things um, I think as well, I want to dive into a little bit, you know, talking a bit about ag tech, what that looks like, you know, as consumers, it's clear to see the benefit there. But as investors, you know, why should this matter to investors? Why is this something, a thematic trend to be focusing on at this point in time? And, And what's the potential environmental impact here to consider as well? Yeah, it, this is this is a, a long-term play for us that uh, we elected to take the company public because we, we thought building this company uh, allows us to have a voice with regulators, with consumers, with grocers, and allows us to build that transparency that's needed in order to be a global food company. But it, it's hard. I mean, we, we are trying to manage a business where we are thinking in decades, 10, 20, 30 years out, while also being head down, knowing that you know we have to deliver every quarter uh, for our public investors. Uh, but for us, this is this is a super long term play where where the trends and no matter which way you look, are, are the tailwinds are all at our back. And and uh, you've got climate disruption, which is making it incredibly difficult for a farmer to predict yield and grow outdoors, whether it's uh, flooding one year or drought uh, several years after. Uh, you You've got uh, increasing uh, regulatory focus on our food system, which you look at the USDA earlier this year, they blocked imports of avocados from Mexico into the U.S. I mean, we're importing food into the U.S. from farms that we have no visibility into uh, that are paying people $5 a day, in some cases forced labor, uh, in some cases illegal chemicals being used throughout the year that if you if you use those chemicals in the U.S., you would go to jail. Our food 
food system is broken. It has to transform. And if you look at the many of the large food companies today, you know, they're like the fossil fuel companies in the 90s and they're like the cigarette companies in the 80s. It eventually will evolve. Uh, and food is has got to be a part of the health di- discussion. You know, when we talk about sustainability and we talk when we talk about building, you know, a sustainable food company, it's it's it should be good for people. So healthy for you, it should be good for planet. I mean, we have the technologies that are available. To, to grow food and produce food that's good for you as a consumer, but it's also good for our planet and allows us to have a much lighter footprint uh, on planet Earth as we as we as we grow uh, humanity in the years to come. So, you know, why why would an investor look at you know controlled environment agriculture again? You know, our viewpoint is. We are in the first inning of controlled environment agriculture, but it's really like the third wave of sustainable infrastructure. And, and getting in CEA today would be like getting in renewable energy 20 years ago or electric vehicles 10 years ago. It is absolutely going to happen. You know, the, the question is how big, how fast. Uh, but eventually, uh, on planet Earth, you know, th- there'll be a time when you, you eat a fruit and vegetable uh, grown outdoors, and that's a luxury. You know, whether it's, again, drought, acid rain, uh, a variety of climate disruption, you know, eating food grown outdoors eventually, whether it's 50 years from now, 30 years from now, or 100 years from now, that will be a luxury. Uh, and we believe growing fruits and vegetables indoors at scale in a controlled environment uh, is simply going to be the, the predominant way in which we grow fruits and vegetables in the decades to come. One last question for you. You know, as as investors, what are a couple of key trends we can be focusing on to track, you know, the growth and overall health of the ag tech space? You know, what should we be looking for? You know, I, I think big picture, it's, it's going to be market share. It's it's depl- it's replacing, you know, what I would consider dirty open field products that are imported from other countries. And, you know, look at tomatoes last year, 4 billion pounds of tomatoes were imported from Mexico into the U.S. That's just one product. I mean, you have a whole suite of fruit and vegetables. So it's about market share at scale. So getting, you know, getting CEA products on shelves for consumers at scale, uh, uh, and then, you know, a trend to watch just outside of just specific to ag tech is is water. I mean, it, it's terrifying. Water is life. You know, water is the reason me and you are on planet Earth. You know, it's the one thing, our planet has the one thing in the known universe that no other large scale planet has, which is water. And without water, me and you have a week to live and plants have a couple days to live. So the way we use that water uh, is critically important. And, and if you look at what's going on in the U.S. and around the world right now, uh, it is it is terrifying. You, you look at the drought problems in the southwest with, again, Lake Mead and the Colorado River. You look at the drought problems in California. Uh we have to do something different. And so I would say, you know, the two most important things are market share for CEA products and displacing current imports. Uh, but it's also tracking, you know, the water issues that, that are continuing to increase around the world and, and in the U.S. And, and those two things, as, as water issues rise, you're going to see a bigger demand for products like we grow, where we use tremendously less water. Uh, and, and, you know, ultimately, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be about consumers grocers and regulators, you know, that want to work with us to redefine what, what American agriculture looks like. 
To learn more about what Jonathan Webb and his team are trying to do, just go to appharvest.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.